afternoon, everyone. It's really a pleasure uh, for me to welcome everyone to the third of this year's President's Lectures. For those of you who are devotees of this lecture, you will know that it, it began about four years ago now as a way for all of us at Princeton uh, to hear the work of our colleagues. We often uh, spend a great deal of time attending lectures and symposia and colloquia uh, given by individuals outside Princeton, but we seldom have an occasion to celebrate the distinction and the eminence and the excitement of the work that is done by our own colleagues, and that's really the purpose of this lecture series. There are going to be three people uh, speaking today, and one thing that unites the three of us is a love of Jane Austen. Now, I will tell you that Jane Austen almost ended my scientific career. <laughs> and that is that when I will tell you this story, that when I was in uh, 12th grade at Kelvin High School in Winnipeg, Manitoba, I uh, had probably the worst chemistry teacher in the history of chemistry. And I realized, given that I wanted to be a chemistry major, that the only way I was going to sustain this ambition was to tune out for the year. And so I sat in the back row and read through the entire oeuvre of Jane Austen. The difficulty was that I was caught at it about halfway through the year and was warned that if I did it again, uh, dire consequences uh, would result. But uh, still believing that my best strategy toward the goal of being a chemistry major was not to pay attention, I continued. And besides, I was in the middle of Mansfield Park. I wasn't about to give up. <laughs> And so I continued and was caught again and spent literally the rest of the year uh, in the vice principal's office reading Jane Austen. <laughs> so I feel a deep uh, and abiding attachment uh, to the topic, and I am just delighted that Claudia Johnson, uh, the chair of our English department, has a, a not only agreed to give this lecture, but to, to give it on a subject that I feel a particular attachment to. And I am very happy that her friend and colleague, Jeff Nunakawa, another devotee of Jane Austen, uh, and many other things, uh, English and literary, uh, has agreed to introduce Claudia to you. Jeff. Hi. Um, uh, um, Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, not just Dr. Johnson. <laughs> Dr. Johnson's proverbial sentence on Milton's great epic, and this is a, a chestnut amongst English professors, none ever wished it longer than it is, must go at least double for a little introduction, so I'll be brief as I know how. Claudia Johnson is the Murray Professor of English Literature here at Princeton. She has written extensively. Ele um, elegantly and profoundly about 18th and early 19th century English novels and the history of their effects, the history of their effects in the century since. Anyone with more than a passing interest in these things knows her work well and for good reason. Uh, I suppose that everyone engaged in serious, sustained scholarship in any field remembers what George Eliot, in her loving account of the medical scientist falling in love with the subject, calls, quote, the growth of intellectual passion. Some class we taught or took, 
some trip to the library or laboratory, some lucky hour when we realize after, to quote Eliot again, the moment of vocation had come. Now, I happen to know of one such moment in Claudia's life, partly because she told me about it, and partly because the power of that moment shows up all over her work. It was here at Princeton, where, as a graduate student, she spent her summer in Firestone Library reading through the work of the redoubtable Dr. Johnson, the same Dr. Johnson whose ghost I see even now glaring at me to hurry up. If, if Jane Austen is the author with whom Claudia has been most associated, as with Austen herself, I suspect it is Samuel Johnson who has had most to do with forming her critical temperament. This isn't especially apparent on the surface level of style. Claudia isn't really into the stern magisterial tones of judgment for which the other Johnson has been routinely admired and avoided. Though again like Johnson, she surely absorbed his knack for the sharp-edged remark that de defeats received pieties with all possible dispatch. I think what Claudia learned from Samuel Johnson, um, it's certainly what she teaches, is to appreciate what he names the awe of observation. Whenever you read Claudia, whenever you talk to her, whatever the subject, whatever the situation, you are going to be impressed by her intellectual precision and by the sense that this precision is at once a habit of mind and an ethical standard. Claudia's keen and patient uh, critical eye is quick to connect the culture of literary texts to the social upheavals that surround and invade them. How telling, how awesome are Claudia's observations of the contrasts and continuities between the green and peaceful certitudes that readers, ourselves included, have always liked to find in Jane Austen, and the hectic whirl of market society or the horrible wounds of world war that menace these certitudes. If the pastoral world that Austen conjures has always been taxed by the heavy specter of its disappearance, or the rumor that it never existed in the first place, how lucky that we have someone as lively-minded as Professor Johnson to help us see what the divine Jane and the generations of readers who have deemed her divine can teach us about how to comprehend this perennial crisis of loss. It is with love and pride that I present to you, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist, our own Dr. Johnson. <laughs> Very, uh, very much, Jeff. That was a uh, an introduction that it will be hard to live up to. But I'll try and thank you very much, President Tillman, for uh, inviting me, and all of you for coming. It's a it's a, a tremendous honor to be here. And surely, I assure you that this paper is all about how people read Jane Austen during ordeals, <laughs> just as bad as what you had to had to undergo. Let me. Let me begin by, uh, by setting the scene uh, through an anecdote. The place is London, and the time is October 1940. And for more than 30 consecutive days and nights, German bomb bombers had blasted part of that city into pieces of burning rubble, forcing residents to seek shelter wherever they could find it from this new form of mass terror and destruction Blitz. One October morning, the London New Statesman and Nation published a letter to an editor from a gentleman who expressed pride in his particular strategy for enduring the Blitz with a peculiar blend of bravado and understatement. I boast, said he, being the only man in London who has been bombed off a lavatory seat 
while reading Jane Austen. <laughs> the concussion proved so uh, uh, violent, he continues, that she went into the bath while I went through the door. Now, this story usually gets a little laugh from my uh, students, but the hilarity turns sober very quickly when I ask what they might be reading under similar circumstances. And my talk today will show that despite his boast, this gentleman was in no way the only one to read Jane Austen's novels during the catastrophes of war. And my purposes are first to suggest what it has meant for us to read Jane Austen during war, and second, to think at the same time of what it might mean for her that we have read her during war. Now, thinking of Jane Austen as a war novelist has certainly not been the prevailing mode of literary criticism for the past 70 years. Isn't Jane Austen remarkable precisely for cordoning off such turbulent topics as war, disease, disaster, and say nothing of sex? Aren't her novels famously vacant of incident, much less of crisis? A neighbor holds a ball, or a gentleman passes through town, and that seems to be all Jane Austen needs to set the whole world uh, into, into motion for a year or more. On the eve of World War II, Austen's novels could readily be read as the very antithesis of the warlike. In um, uh, 1938, a minor novelist named Eric Linklater published a novel that was actually an update of Lysistrata entitled The Impregnable Women, which imagines a Second World War breaking out between Germany and France first, before, the, uh, before all of Europe uh, joins in. Now, for my present purposes, what seems most significant about this now obscure work is that it features a doddering prime minister who's actually based on the real prime minister, um, uh, 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 Stanley Baldwin. And in the novel, his name is Lord Pippin. Now, this gentleman, Lord Pippin, is given to country life pleasures such as gardening, hunting, and tea parties. And his rank incapacity for the business of national leadership is signaled by the fact that he passes from surreptitious to utterly abandoned reading of Jane Austen's novels as the national crisis deepens. First, he hides volumes of Emma in the chair cushions all over his residence, reading them only as a temporary and very uh, solitary uh, pleasure uh, uh, and respite from the rigors of uh, statesmanship. But later, as the war gets worse, he actually openly and brazenly takes the volumes out during cabinet meetings, during, during briefings about uh, military developments. And he, and he openly rejoices when adjournments per uh, permit him to turn from war to what he calls the pleasanter company of Jane Austen and her characters, Miss Woodhouse and Mr. Knightley. Now, I first learned about this novel uh, when reading D.W. Harding's path-breaking essay, Regulated Hatred, an aspect of the work of Jane Austen, familiar to almost all students of Jane Austen. It was delivered as a lecture in 1939 and published in 1940. My point is, during the real World War II. Harding extends Linklater's uh, satire on Lord Pippin and on his gentle Janeism to an entire class of readers he deems foolish because they regard Jane Austen as a refuge when the contemporary world grows too much for them. Uh, Harding's purpose is certainly not to scorn Jane Austen, but to scorn soft, old-fashioned, frivolous, dotty upper-class readers of her, readers who fail to realize that she despises them. <laughs> 
Harding's contempt for Lord Pippin and his ilk is important to understand, because by positing a subversive Jane Austen who dramatized the eruption of fear and hatred into the relationships of everyday life, he was trying to wrest her away from the genteel classes who took comfort to her in her and to give her to uh, middle-class intellectuals who wanted to use her as an instrument of social criticism. Only the weak, effeminate, and superannuated, it's implied, think that Jane Austen is some sweet lady novelist to whom one can take, uh, uh, take refuge. Now, for a variety of reasons I don't have to uh, go into right now, this criticism is really misplaced and plain wrong. Jane Austen's uh, earlier readers were intensely absorbed in her strength. They used her novels as a way of enduring war rather than escaping from its reality into a quaint world of tea parties and chit-chat. Now, it is true that in 1937, novelist Beatrice Keane Seymour celebrated Austen's civility as an alternative to world war. But she does so by daring us to use the word escapist as a pejorative. I'll read what she says. In a society which has enthroned the machine gun and carried it aloft even into the quiet heavens. There will always be men and women, escapist or not, as you please, who will turn to her novels with an unending sense of relief and thankfulness. It's needless to say that Seymour knows her English history. She knows that Jane Austen lived virtually every year of her adult life during the Napoleonic Wars. She knows that her sailor brothers made their careers fighting them. If Austen's novels make little mention of them, it's not because she is oblivious to, them, to these wars, but it's rather because she is so saturated in them and in their dailiness. Much as, and here I'm going to pick up from uh, Seymour, much as, she says, much as we today in post-war England have got used to the various wars still being waged in the world, and this despite the continued threat of our own involvement. The human mind especially in our own day when news of fresh horrors reach us so rapidly and continually, the human mind arrives at a point when if existence is to be supported and sanity preserved, it has to shut itself up against the knowledge. I suspect, she continues, that for Jane the war did not bear thinking about. There was nothing to be done about it, and yet all the time it was there, a cold horror at the back of the mind a cold horror at the back of the mind. This is probably not how most of us would itemize the furniture of Jane Austen's intelligence. But consider the following shocking sentence that she penned in a letter of May 31st, 1811, after she learned about a particularly deadly battle in the Peninsular Wars that had been uh, uh, raging since uh, 1808. How horrible it is, she says, to have so many people killed. And what a blessing that one cares for none of them. Fellow Austinians will recognize the signature's cadence of Austin's style here. Compare it to lines like this from her juvenile writings. She was nothing more than a mere good-tempered, civil, and obliging young woman. As such, we could scarcely dislike her. She was only the object of contempt. Or a line like this from her letters, I do not want people to be very agreeable, as it saves me the trouble of liking them. 
These lines slap us into attention and oblige us to think, and to, uh, and to think hard, and to realize how much of our time is spent in an unthinking way, not, not really, uh, really uh, zoning in on what's being said. Remarks like this have also led some people to despise Austin as callous, as a rather heartless little cynic, as Frederick Harrison put it in a letter to Thomas Hardy, penning satires against their neighbors whilst the dynasts were tearing the world to pieces and consigning millions to their graves. But if we posit the presence of a cold horror at the back of Austin's mind that got there precisely because of war, then this quip, crafted as it is with perfect neoclassical balance, how horrible it is to have so many people killed, and what a blessing that one cares for none of them, reads not as a testimonial to her brutal indifference to the deaths of those that she does not know, but rather as a mind-bogglingly understated testimonial to the relief of being quite randomly spared personal horror and grief. I suggest that this is not coldness, but something more like sang-froid. Nowadays, of course, we read Austen as a female novelist, specifically preoccupied with how femininity was understood, an issue of tremendous social and political importance in her times. Now, I myself have made a good deal of this, and it would be highly imprudent of me to jettison all of it right now. But even granting the importance of gender in the wake of the French Revolution, we lose a lot if we think that Austen's novels are preeminently or predominantly about women. The same constraints we today identify in her novels as feminine, qualities such as modesty, and self-control were read by many soldiers during World War I as masculine qualities or virtues such as reticence, temperance, composure, self-command. Her style of unflappably lucid and penetrating understatement made her very attractive to English soldiers. Discussing how the Great War left his generation with a bitter cynicism that transformed reading tastes of an entire generation, Hugh Walpole observed that while the catastrophes and disappointments of the war left us with a deep contempt for what seemed to us a naive and desperately complacent idealism that he identifies with Victorian writers, it was very natural and significant, he continues, that the one novelist of the 19th century who expressed in her work no philosophy at all, whose observation was ironic, and whose genius was mainly in the humor of little things, was our own Jane Austen, who might, in spirit at least, have belonged to our post-war time. Austen is our contemporary because her irony exemplifies a generation whose ideals have blown up, a generation that respects the humor of little things, not because they're dainty and darling, but because big things seem a sham. Austen is the preeminent Great War novelist by this account because in her novels there is no cant, no hollow pieties, no, and with homage to Professor Frankfurt's recent book, no bullshit. The first decidedly modern celebration of Austen, indeed, was written by Reginald Farrer, a noted novelist, playwright, traveler, and war correspondent who was also a botanist, who is remembered today mostly for his books on gardening and horticulture. Farrar credited Jane Austen for passing over the tyrannies and empires that erupt and collapse here below, 
and for turning instead to what he calls a new kingdom of refuge from the toils and frights of life, a kingdom of art existing outside and beyond daily life. There is no easy notion of escape employed here. He wrote his tribute in 1917, the centenary of Austin's death, having read her novels and thought about them and quoted them in what he calls a waterlogged trench. The cataclysms of World War I fundamentally condition his tribute, particularly his claims about her capacity for intense vitalization, her steely, inexorable rigor uh, of her judgment, her calm but merciless iconoclasm. Everything, he says, everything false and feeble withers in the demure grayness of her gaze. Ferrer's own, own iconoclastic and misogynist war memoir of 1918, entitled The Void of War, is peppered with cited and uncited references to Jane and to her novels such as Emma, Mansfield Park, and Northanger Abbey. Sharing Austin's certainty that the epical instances of life are not to be adequately expressed in words, Ferrer declines to describe the epical carnage he encounters with any sort of detail, much less to moralize on it. Austin is there, however, with him on the war front. His allusions to the divine Jane are intensely odd from our point of view. Um, because, uh, and yet at the same time I want to say they're also very typical of the kinds of allusions engaged in by veterans of World War I. They take an incredibly fragmented and piecemeal form. Not for him, the aphoristic, the quotable Jane Austen of, say, it is a truth universally acknowledged. Instead, he folds into highly charged moments, allusions that seem completely insignificant, inapt, or indeed so obscure that only the most confirmed Janeite will ever spot them as actually being by Jane Austen. Coming upon what he calls a castle of corpses stacked up on Vimy Ridge, Farr notices then that there are birds chattering overhead. And he says, they're all talking together, but Rebecca the loudest. And what he's doing when he says that is turning to a not particularly memorable or dramatic moment of domestic chaos in Mansfield Park, when Austin's most grievously vulnerable heroine uh, attempts desperately to remain alert and collected upon finding her home, her castle, not to be sweetly sheltering or humane, but, a, but instead she finds it a squalid, cacophonous, and unceremonious place. And she finds that her blood relations are utterly indifferent to her and to the delicacies that she has cultivated among her wealthy relations. Again, Fanny's experience receives no dramatic emphasis. Indeed, its very unremarkableness is what makes it so plangent, not only in itself, but as a basis of a juxtaposition with an early 20th century man, beholding a heap of carnage amidst a world that manifestly could not care less. All of the birds are talking, but Rebecca the loudest. There's no no notice taken of this, um, of this spectacle, spectacle of, 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 um, of horror and, uh, and disenchantment. Now, to compare Fanny Price to Reginald Farr is not, I suggest, to compare the little to the big. 
Instead, it's to appreciate the intensity of suffering in Jane Austen's novels, and so to discover an underlying continuity that consists of a commitment to poise in the face of de-idealization. Now, that is a real-world uh, memoir. Let me turn now briefly to the most uh, eloquent uh, and famous extended fictional testimonial to Jane Austen as a war novelist during World War I. It's Kipling's famous story, The Janeites, that was written in 1923. Now, this is a story within a frame story, and it's set in a London Masonic Lodge during 1920, where the brethren have met for a weekly cleanup. As three characters clean the organ loft, Humberstall, uh, who is a Cockney veteran of service in France, talks about this secret society into which he was initiated while serving under the supervision of his sergeant as an officer's mess waiter on the war front in France. One day, as the officers are discussing whether or not Jane died without leaving lawful and direct progeny, as the quotation goes, his highly intoxicated sergeant interrupts, she did leave lawful issue in the shape of, in the shape of one son, and his name was Henry James. Humberstall <laughs> looks on puzzled that the superior officer is far from punishing this insubordinate assertiveness from a sergeant, actually have the sarge taken off solicitously to bed. And he wonders, what is it? Why, why does he get to have all of these, uh, these privileges? Accordingly, he, he attempts to find out more about this club in whose membership there are such privileges. When the sergeant uh, recovers from his binge, he sells him the club's password that turns out to be another little fragmented uh, tagline from Northanger Abbey called Till Knees and Trap Doors. Who cares about it? Nobody notices it. It's just very characteristically a little, a little phrase. Okay, and this gives you membership into this secret Janeite rating club that meets uh, regularly uh, in this utterly crazy, bizarre situation while while trench warfare is being conducted or not conducted, as as uh, you know, as the case is, as you're just there, um, as you're just there waiting. Okay, now. Um, um, Jane, actually, uh, he becomes a regular member of this club, and he, he really starts becoming a confirmed Janeite himself. And he finds that Jane makes these grisly horrors quite companionable. It was, he says, a happy little group, he murmurs quite nostalgically of this secret society. Now, unlike most readers from the 1950s on, Kipling's Janeites do not see Austen's novels as being about courtship in marriage. In fact, the heterosexual love plot is less than inevitable to them. In their civilian lives, the Janets are all rather chilly towards women. Jane, in fact, was the only woman I ever heard them say a good word for. And they're also very chary of domesticity. The senior Janites in the club are divorce court lawyers and a private detective uh, specializing in adultery cases. <laughs> Even Humberstall himself, having been discharged from an earlier stint of service because of shell shock, again, you know, he's, he's crazy, um, can so little tolerate the household company of his mother, sister, and aunts that he actually re-enlists to get back to the war front. Now, the Janeites recognize that Jane Austen's novels are all about young girls of 17 and not certain of whom they'd like to marry. 
But this narrative fact is leveled with all the other narrative facts that happen in the novels. Their dances, their card parties, their picnics, and their young blokes going off to London on horseback for haircuts and shades. This is a tale that's particularly engaging to Humberstall because he, in civilian life, is a hairdresser. In short, as far as plot is concerned, Austen's novels weren't adventurous, nor smutty, nor what you'd even call interesting. In fact, there's nothing to them at all. Nothing at all, he says. Now, in a world where the ending of the story is certain death, all of these Jainites die, except Humberstall, who was alone at the end to tell the story. Um, there, uh, um, uh, the, the readers actually cathect onto Austen's novels precisely because they do appear to have no plot. There's nothing to them. Working against plot with all of its forward-moving momentum, with all of its tension and its catastrophe and its closure, um, the Jainites dwell instead on quite atemporal forms of narration, uh, like the catchphrases that we've seen. And they also dwell on that achievement which made readers from Scott through A.C. Bradley celebrate Jane Austen as second only to Shakespeare, the power of characterization. So acutely does Humberstall recognize the pertinence of Jane Austen to, and her characters to the experience of trench warfare that he actually renames the canons according to um, the uh, bad characters in Jane Austen's novels. Um, uh, when uh, he, uh, he decides to christen the canons with, uh, by uh, the names Reverend Collins, Miss Bates, and Lady Catherine de Bourgh, <laughs> he is obliged to defend his choice of names afterwards to the Janeite officers over glasses of port. Now, wouldn't it be, make more sense to have names like Captain Wentworth or George Knightley be appropriately inscribed on, uh, on the casements of the, uh, of the canons in contrast to a poor old lady Miss Bates, who, whose disgraceful lot it is to be not feared. Nobody fears her. Okay? Uh, it seems to me that, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that this is a, a choice of names that has to be accounted for. It's both absurdly heroic and probably kind of poignant, because the name is only intelligible as a commentary on the futility of the war effort. While Miss Bates could conceivably bore someone to death with her conversation, her firepower is hardly efficacious against Jerry munitions. And it is perhaps for that very reason that the Jayad officers approve of his choice and they reward him with some extra cigarettes. Now, as Christopher Kent has shown, Austen's novels were recommended to British veterans uh, who were suffering post-traumatic stress syndrome in the years following World War I. For soldiers whose minds were shattered by history, the circumscribed anti-global dimensions of Austen's fictional world felt rehabilitative, and her presumed triviality could feel honest and uh, redemptive. Austenian virtues, such as transparency, discipline, domesticity, and order orderliness and poise could um, actually promote the lucidity and self-definition and courage that they, uh, that, they, uh, that they required. At the end of the story, Humberstall has become an avid reader of Jane Austen's novels, not because they enable him to capture a safe and moderate world that war has not shaken, but precisely because they remind him of the trenches and the fellowship he experienced there. He says, it brings it all back down to the smell of the glue paint on the screens. You take it from me, brothers, 
There's no one to touch Jane when you're in a tight place. That tight place being the trench or any ordeal. Now, the often beloved by World War I veterans traveled to the trenches, and it was that experience of alienation away from England that makes World War I Jainism very distinctive. Jane Austen was understood to be not a part from the real world, but a large part of it, where the real world was specifically understood to be under duress of the severest sort, and where qualities like reticence, understatement, local attachment, self-control, and irony, bordering on cynicism, were understood to be constitutive elements of a national character, particularly national manhood, that had seen the worst and survived with composure, a composure at once fragile and admirable. When we take this experience and read backwards into Austen of the early 19th century, we find an intensely dark and rich vision of her novels where the trench becomes the neighborhood, where the young men at war, uh, who were scarcely uh, older than Jane Austen's own heroines at, you know, at a certain point, 17 years old, um, become young women who must face their own ordeals of disenchantment with self-possession, a self-possession that now appears intensely heroic precisely because it's understood to take all of your might not to fall apart. This soldierly drama of self-possession is in play, for example, when uh, Eleanor Dashwood must explain to her emotionally demonstrative and volatile sister why and how she endures the anguish of fruitless love. Yes, she says, I love him. I loved him. She says of a man that she feels that she will never be able to marry. Yes, I loved him. But I did not love only him. Again, is that... Coldness, or is that sans froid? You know the answer. That was a rhetorical question. (laughs) As we move towards World War II, where a grandiose imperial England was replaced by a littler England around which a different form of patriotism was being formed, Austin inspired a nation at war in a very different way. As John Taylor writes, at the same time as people rejected jingoism, they drew a less brittle kind of strength from the reformed sense of the nation as self-deprecating, as understated, as gentle, and at ease with itself. Austin's work moved towards the center of a national identity, co-extended with a, co-extensive excuse me, with a cherished yet vulnerable civilian home front. During World War II, she mobilizes national feeling by being linked to the experience of a peaceful privacy rudely intruded upon by war, as we saw earlier with the poor gentleman bombed off his toilet seat. Part of the sublime and the ridiculous here, I think, is that that the blitz thwarts the consolations of Austinian consolation uh, in private places. During World War II, Newspapers frequently report that Austen's novels were both in very great demand and very hard to come by, in part because paper restrictions uh, halted the republications of classic novels, and in part because storehouses were bombed during the raids, and so um, all of the stock uh, had, had, had burnt up. But because Austen at this time is construed as a respite, she is a resource in short supply. One Austin, uh, one uh, London newspaper writes in April 1943, 
It is as pleasant to be told that the young men and women in the forces want to read Miss Austen's novels as it is harrowing to learn that they cannot get them. So considered, shortages of Austen's novels seem particularly punishing, for soldiers deserve reprieve. If the best and most reviving literature for times such as these is that which gives a brief escape from thoughts of war, the writer continues, then who should stand behind or beside Miss Austen? The uh, books are full of the drowsy humming of a summer garden, which can deafen the ears even to the humming of the aeroplanes overhead. Nor were books the only purveyors of Austinian consolation. In November 1940, the MGM production of Pride and Prejudice afforded, uh, 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 as the reviewer of the London Observer says, a great deal of pleasure that made him forget for two blessed hours that the world wasn't bounded by Longbourn, Rosings, Netherfield, and a wedding ring. Now, this escape is so proximate to what is being escaped from, the humming of the gardens, of the bees in the gardens, and the humming of the planes overhead, that it really can't be separated from it. Britain's Foreign Office solicited U.S. support by opposing the view of Britain as the aristocratic and decadent land, with the view of England as robust, and the war as a people's war. For a war-weary U.S. audience, uh, the 1940 MGM Pride and Prejudice, like the 1942 production of Mrs. Miniver, if somewhat less dramatically, these movies presented England as domesticated, as accommodating, as endearing, and spunky, an England altogether worthy of our alliance. Later, uh, Henry Seidel Canby devotes a column of the Saturday Review to war reading, for American soldiers, claiming that the greatest novels in England, at least, written in wartime, are unquestionably Jane Austen's novels. Her present relevance is obvious. I'll read an extended paragraph of him. Jane's stories are absolutely conditioned, he writes, by the threats to the security of that marvelously integrated country life of England. In the lurid light coming from overseas, the character of the Englishman, the temperament of the English woman took on a heightened importance. The English countryside, which they had built, seemed fairer, more desirable than ever before. The country life of parson, squire, and, um, and neighborhood acquired um, an importance which it did not possess because of its happy contrasts with confusion, loss, and breakdown abroad. In this provincial utopia, bad temper, pomposity, servility, sentimentality, snobbishness, and greed were seen as especial dangers because they were the cracks which might topple down the magnificent stability which had uh, lost a new world in the West and was standing fast when Europe fell. Now, Camby seems to be talking about the Napoleonic Wars of the 19th century. But what he talks about standing fast when all of Europe fell, we know that he's actually talking once again about now and that once again Jane Austen is our contemporary. Okay? His tributes to English character, English gender, English landscape are endeared by danger now. And these things re uh, remind American soldiers why England is worth fighting for. The American war effort in Europe draws on a reservoir, he continues, of goodwill for England and the character and temperament molded there over the ages, he says. And the English, and this is the, uh, the, the, the ringer, 
the English ought to thank Jane Austen as much as anyone for that. You know, so now that Jane Austen is the reason the Americans uh, join uh, the uh, war effort. In <laughs> During World War I, she was, uh, Jane Austen was uh, as portable as the English soldier in Flanders, but during World War II, allusions to Austen uh, link her to a homeland assaulted by barbarity. Take as an instance the aftermath of the Baedeker Blitzes. Provoked by, uh, 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 this is the, the blackout. <laughs> Pretty soon we'll hear the sirens going. <laughs> Okay, let me find my place. The Baydecker Blitzes, yes, okay. Provoked by British uh, bombing attacks on civilian targets uh, in Lübeck in uh, March 1942, the German Air Command, uh, motivated, it is said, by uh, Hitler's personal orders, executed retaliatory raids on Exeter, Norwich, York, Canterbury, and Bath, towns marked with stars in the Baydecker's Guide to Great Britain. These were understood as attacks not on sites of military importance, but uh, as attacks upon English culture and history that were calculated to demoralize. The bombings of Bath were heavier and much deadlier than those on other towns, consisting of three raids on the nights of April 25th, 6th, and one on April 27th and 26th in 1942. These killed about uh, 400 uh, people. Um, in the feature on the, these uh, bombings on Bath that ran in the July 4th issue of Picture Post, Austin is a very strong intertextual presence. I'm not going to lie to you here. I think, but I think she's being talked to, uh, talked about, you know, Im implicitly. Uh, passing over the bombing damage done to houses, shelters, and people in the poorer parts of Bath, Picture Post suggests that it was our heritage that suffered during the Blitz, and that this heritage is coextensive with the assembly rooms, the Royal Crescent, and the regional, uh, Regency villas, and the elegant drawing rooms, the walls and the furniture that we all uh, recognize um, as people of taste, as, uh, as the article says, uh, and associate with Jane Austen. Now, the identification of Austen with the elegance and taste of Bath, and Bath in turn with English heritage is very explicit in a little volume by Lieutenant R.A. Lyndon Smith. He wrote a book entitled Bath in 1943 when he was 28, and it was published posthumously a year later when he died in action, um, uh, I think, uh, over, over Italy. One in a long line of soldiers who are attached to Jane Austen, Smith describes in his, uh, uh, Smith is described in the, in the preface as a medievalist who had a great devotion to all English things, and who cherished and understood the high civilized traditions of his country. And these are qualities that he considered to be typifi uh, typified by Bath. Smith's uh, penultimate uh, chapter is devoted entirely to Jane Austen, and invites us to see Bath through her eyes by presenting long passages from Northanger Abbey and Persuasion which both involve extensive uh, uh, um, outings to, uh, to Bath. Now, uh, he was a, a very devout uh, Catholic who described his trip to Bath as part of a, a pilgrimage. He, um, Smith saw Bath as a holy city. He describes it as a new Jerusalem built by some magic hand in England's green and pleasant land. As his rhapsodic tone suggests, 
Death occupies historical as well as transcendent temporalities. On the one hand, he associates Bath with Rome, the Roman occupation, with, uh, with the Middle Ages, and with the 18th century and the Regency, um, as in one sort of timeless, uh, uh, in one sort of timeless gesture. And Bath is all of those things. And at the same time, Bath is an embattled city here below. Now, forget the fact that Jane Austen hated Bath. Forget the fact that the real Jane Austen found its yellow stone so glaring that they, it always gave her a headache, she said. Okay, it's the myth that's the point here. The Bath that Jane Austen knew is seen as Bath perdurable, a very feminine manifestation of national glory and endurance. She remains today in her architecture, her history, and her tradition a perfect epitome of our national past, a harbinger of an even greater future. It's very hard here to figure out whether he's talking about Bath or Jane Austen. Now, having consolidated all of English history and national character into the simultaneously ancient and modern site of Bath, Smith is in a position to have it both ways when he turns to the Baydecker raids. On the one hand, the bombing of the assembly rooms in the Royal Crescent are savage attacks on the feminine serenity of the city. Photos of rubble are adduced to testify to the monumental incivility of enemies who would pound targets of such Austinian grace. As Smith describes how planes roared down in dive bombing attacks as low as 50 feet and then mercilessly fired on streets and buildings with cannon and machine gun. Yet at the other hand, because Bath is eternal, it is beyond the possibility of any real or lasting injury. And so the enemy is both atrocious and curiously ineffectual, much uh, as the picture post had represented the Nazis as unmatterly gutter snipes, vandalizing elegant drawing rooms. Smith's uh, city is a woman, an Austinian woman, of such poise whose dignity really cannot be ruffled. The foregoing confirms John Taylor's observation that England was transformed between the war from a masculine heroic nation uh, to a feminized country. And this increasingly elegiac material identification of Austen with the vanished loveliness of Georgian England brings me to the founding of the Jane Austen Society. Now, compared to other literary societies, the Jane Austen Society is quite a latecomer. The Shakespeare Club was formed in 1824. The Browning Society in 1881, the Bronte Society in 1893, the George Eliot Fellowship in 1930. But though bands of private Janeites, as I've shown, were always quite common, the official Jane Austen Society was not formed significantly until 1940, uh, uh, a year after England declared war. At its founding, its aim was not the appreciation of Jane Austen's novels. And in fact, officers of this society have boasted to me that they've never read them at all and never intend to. <laughs> Instead, they are actually uh, committed to the preservation of Austenian property. In other words, it's the place that has to be preserved. Even today, its stated goal is to obtain possession of the house at Chawton and to make it available as a showplace and museum. Now, until the 1940s, Chawton Cottage, where Austin lived from 1809 to 1817, was a complete shambles. And though it was marked as Jane Austen's one-time home, it was so far from being considered a national shrine that people talked of tearing it down for road construction. One village lady named Dorothy Darnell started the society when she happened 
to find a cast iron fire grate from the house uh, along the road, having been thrown there into a heap of nettles. Uh, it was uh, thrown there because uh, they were going to make way for, uh, for gas fire. Now, it was war, I'm suggesting, that transformed this egregiously ordinary fire grate, something which one might call in another situation junk, uh, into a treasure. Uh, and it also transformed Darnell's efforts at local preservation into some nationally uh, momentous rescue work. Uh, I think uh, something more than therapeutic diversion was at stake in trying to put Jane Austen's house in order. For in 1940, 40, after all, in 1940, it was by no means apparent that England itself wouldn't end up in the same scrap heap that Darnell found the fire grate. As elsewhere uh, in England, lovers of heritage hid national treasures from the uh, depredations of the feared invader. So here the Jane Austen Society would attempt to preserve Jane Austen's donkey cart, the household bacon roller, uh, the wash house. All of these things were gathered and preserved as true relics. Uh, also, people started trying to gather accounts of uh, uh, and recollections, local recollections of Jane Austen. Now, in 1946, the Austen Society appealed for contributions from admirers of Jane Austen's work who would like to see this house preserved as a national monument, it was said. The Times reprinted this appeal and endorsed the project of preserving for posterity more than a vestige, a solid monument of Georgian comfort and Georgian elegance. But not even Austen's status as a national treasure was sufficient to raising a stunning 5,000 pounds worth of purchase and repair costs at an annual subscription rate of half a crown. But once again, a soldier's Jainism came through. In 1948, T. Edward Carpenter purchased Chawton and funded its repairs in memory of his son, Philip John Carpenter, a lieutenant uh, of the East Surrey Regiment who died in action in 1944. Chawton Cottage is his memorial. Chawton Cottage is not Jane Austen's house. It is a war memorial to a soldier who loved her. The marble panel commemorating him is in the drawing room. The monument and the museum together suggest that Austen is what he fought and fell for. Now, I began with a fictional prime minister's Jainism, and I'd like to conclude with a real prime minister. Ill with pneumonia, Winston Churchill finally followed his doctor's orders, and he put aside the work of war in order to recuperate. Having read only Sense and Sensibility before, Churchill, who you will gather was clearly not a Jainite, asked his daughter to read Pride and Prejudice to him while he was convalescing. What calm lives they led, those people, he observed. No worries about the French Revolution or the crashing struggle of the Napoleonic Wars. Only manners controlling natural passion so far as they could, together with cultured explanations for any mischance. Now, unlike the readers I've covered today, Churchill found Austin as isolated from World War II as she was from the Napoleonic Wars, and as precious, actually, on those very grounds. English soldiers, from his point of view, were fighting to restore calm lives, where manners were enough to control passions without the unnatural and uncultured trials of war. With Churchill, we glimpse the private a political Austin most of us grew up with, an author whose irrelevance to war is the given 
that enabled her to turn with such intensity of moral discrimination to the manners of courtship and neighborhood tittle-tattle. Churchill's words, drawn from his monumental work, The Second World War, are proudly displayed in Chawton Cottage, but I would think twice before taking them as an unequivocal tribute. As I have shown, many earlier readers saw Austen as an object as well as an agent of national heroism, as what we fight for, as well as someone we fight with. By consigning Austen to a landscape outside of national conflict, a figure apart from, rather than a part of, catastrophic global conflict, Churchill put severe limits on the ability of her novels to help us endure, even as it also implied a rather trivializing apprehension of the trials represented and implied in Austen's novels. Today, the only wars in which Austen seems particularly invoked are the culture wars. We are less inclined to regard her as someone we fight with and more inclined to think of her as someone we fight about. No longer regarded as someone who can save us or strengthen us, she is cast as someone whom we must protect, not from the marauding barbarians who love her not, but from radicals or Philistines who love her in the wrong way <laughs> and who therefore must be stopped at all costs. This, I am certain, is a great diminution, for we are not past needing her. In the heartbreaking civility discernible on the streets of Manhattan after 9-11, the legacy of Austinian manners live on taking solace in and strength from the temperateness and lucidity Austen both represents and inspires, may not be the cutting edge of academic criticism. But if the professionalization of Austen studies has meant forgetting how her novels have signified courage and consolation, we might well wonder if Lord Pippin wasn't on to something after all. Thank you. my chemistry story would be so relevant. <laughs> uh, uh, Professor Johnson is happy to answer questions from the audience. Who would like to ask the first question? No anecdotes of... <laughs> yes, please. Okay. The, yes. Right. Exactly. This uh, this remark. Um, remember the um, the uh, the shocking letter um, that uh, that said how horrible it is that so many thousands of people died and what a blessing that one cares about none of them. Uh, isn't that a uh, a symptomatic of Austin's honesty? And 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 I think I think you're absolutely right. It is. And it was that that type of honesty, that refusal to engage in in sort of high-minded, uh, high minded, um, high. Uh, uh, hollow piety, you know, she, she felt lucky, uh, lucky to be spared the turbulence of solicitude that's, that all of the loved ones of the thousands who died must, uh, you know, must 
uh, must be experiencing, and that and that, uh, that that was being spared. So I'm, I'm actually arguing that uh, that you can read it as a, you know as a as you know as a witticism, but it also reads straight as something completely true. And I think a lot of Austin's uh, most sort of stunning sentences are kind of boomerangs in that way, that it kind of seems funny, and then you read it twice or three times, and, uh, and you, do, you do that double take that forces you actually to read, actually to pay attention, and, and it means something completely different. Is this heartlessness, or is this, in fact, being so full-hearted that you feel grateful that, you're, that your heart isn't breaking? Please. I wonder whether you are not loving Jane Austen in the wrong way, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased that you don't like D.W. Harding. Uh, but oh, no, no, I, I actually love D.W. Harding. I love D.W. Harding. But I, I think that he, uh, he wouldn't credit previous critics for, um, for also regarding Jane Austen as very tough-minded. Well, I think that the, the point that he makes that her, her contemporary readers is too dull understand the satire directed at them is contradicted by Miss Bates, mm -hmm. who understands perfectly well uh, Emma's satire directed at her. But I, I wanted to ask about the tone of your lecture, which mm -hmm. I find a little difficult to understand. I would read Eleanor's response to her sister Marianne not as mere sang-froid, but as um, the, the kind of effort for virtue that's very characteristic of the romance heroine from must be a, a terrible problem with my tongue because I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, <laughs> uh, uh, enjoying and enduring life, that's precisely the consolation that people under duress take in, uh, you know, in, in Jane Austen. Um, but, that's, um, um, but, but that's because of the rigor of her honesty. Um, and again, I, I thought that's exactly what I was saying about um, about Eleanor, that that it wasn't um, that she was saying I, I I loved him and I'll get over him, and that 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 is meaningful precisely because it is so full of emotion, but that it is emotion contained and controlled. Um, you know, uh, in other words, you hold yourself together precisely because you're falling apart, and I and I think and I think that's what the soldiers like in her. The fact that she's committed is that she has these people committed to holding her together, and what and what the soldiers re when they're reading her realize is that there's a lot to hold together there, and what um, and what people who take a much more sanguine view of Jane Austen don't realize is that they're in such pain to begin with. Do you understand? I mean that it's not plastic. Yeah. Oh, oh no, no, I didn't. I didn't mean that. I meant courage. 
I meant uh, courage in face of difficulty. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's that's a you know that's a very good question. Um, this is this is a, a selection from a much larger um, um, a chapter. In, you know, in fact, in which I do talk at great length about Irish readings of uh, of Jane Austen, which surprisingly enough. Love her, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and which say the same thing. Well, lads, there's nothing like Jane Austen. That, you know, and, and that they found that local attachment, and 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 sort of cleanness of Jane Austen readily transferable to their own national tradition. So, um, so no. I mean, I do think that it, that there's a stronger case, you know, for the English Jane Austen. Um, uh, as, you know, as being someone that English writers in particular can take pride in when things, let's face it, weren't going very well and hadn't been for a long time. She's somebody they can really take pride in. Um, it, it's actually amazing how, uh, how Austin goes across national borders in similar ways. Uh, in, uh, of course, in, Amer in America, um, in Japan, Austin is intensely popular. Yes. Any other questions? Please. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me um, let me re re repeat that. Um, this um, uh, um, woman is, is is remarking that um, that when she read Jane Austen for the first time in German, it just seemed like a good read, a, um, a love story, um, uh, and didn't really you know see qualities of moral honesty and rigor in her novels until encountering her in English when it seemed, uh, when, when reading it in English, seemed to absolutely transform the, uh, the novels themselves. So now you do think that they're striking for their rigor. Yeah. I wonder what it is that doesn't translate well. I, I, I think that something in the in the cadence in her mastery of the cadence of of English as well um, that uh, the way she orchestrates pauses, you know, that kind of tell you how to read, you know, how the sentence can be read, you know, and and, and where to place, where to pause, you know, um, um, that 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 does it. Um, as Virginia Woolf called called it, the shapeliness and severity of her sentences. And that has always uh, struck me as a really beautiful way of, of, 
of describing the um, the uh, the um, um, muscularity, really, you know, of her prose, and it's absolutely something that she had from the age of 12 on. Um, and I, I noticed when I was doing some research into the periodicals her older brothers started when they attended Oxford that they had this kind of ponderous pseudo-Johnsonian style, you know, and and but they have none of that rigor, none of that sense of of, of, of the musicality of the prose that actually helps you as you read along. Uh, and she had it. She had it at 12. She already knew how to write a sentence that, you know, um, that if I wrote one, my whole life I'd feel happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. There's a question over here. Yes. Oh, please. Um, I was interested in um, your discussion of the general misogyny of um, Jane and Kipling's story. Good question. And how Jane Austen was the only uh-huh. woman that they had anything nice to say about. Yeah. How much the spectacle of suffering women, um, <laughs> what, what kind of role that that might have played in the attractiveness of the novel to, in that kind of situation. Like, just the sense of not having, of, well, what, what do you think is the impact that this was the experience that these men were having with women for a very long time? I mean, I really like the way you, you kind of pick up on something because you know, Jane Austen is always famous for someone like who never represents men thinking at any length, and very rarely does she show you two men without women in the in the room, you know, um, and that and that she, as as Jeff observed in conversation with me, that she should actually become the preeminently beloved uh, woman novelist for male homosocial society seems quite uh, quite in need of explanation, and I gather that that's <laughs> what you're asking, and I'll now get to the answer. Um, um, I actually think, and again, you have to kind of imagine a world before feminism, which, and again, I'm not complaining about that, but, you know, we're, but I'm thinking about how she has been read and, and loved intelligently in historical ways. And I actually think that they found that the men on, on the war fronts, particularly in World War I, found it very easy to identify with Austin's heroines. It never, never occurred to them not to. Um, uh, so I don't think it's the spectacle of, of suffering. I think it's simply that in some basic ways, they consider Jane Austen a man. Do you know that they consider her masculine, I should say, that the quality of her mind, the quality of her sentences, the quality of her judgment, um, they see as masculine. Uh, uh, masculine because unsentimental and self-contained so that, again, what we have come to read as modesty reads more as a more masculine virtue of, of reticence during this this time uh, and a reticence that's valued precisely because you've got so much to hold in, like Eleanor. Yes, please, sir. My question is, uh, parents that have books, a non-functional family. Yes, you want me to say something about non-functional family? Okay. <laughs> Mine was. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, this is a very interesting, um, um, you know, point. It, it does seem really clear that families in Jane Austen are kind of a nightmare, and for that reason... <laughs> It's, it's kind of surprising, really, that, that um, 
that sort of neocons nowadays, nowadays sort of see her as a repository of family values. I just don't see it. You know, uh, uh, and, and in novels, uh, you know, like let's say Northanger Abbey or Pride and Prejudice, that you know the really good moments, you know, you're totally embarrassed by your family. You don't want your boyfriend to see you with with, with your mother in the room because she's going to embarrass you or something like that. Uh, but and and where Austen really wants to show independence, she has to actually take her heroines out of the household, take them to Bath, take them on a, some traveling trip, or you know, or, or something. Uh, something like that. One one suspects there's a lot of biographical stuff, you know, at 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 play here. Uh, and again, it's, it's hard to relate that actually to the to the war stuff, except insofar as uh, as home is not a sheltering place. And I think the World War One readers are very aware of of home as um is not a sheltering place. Now in World War Two, Jane Austen is sort of more identified. With with um, with a sweet domesticity that's being pounded, so they're very distinct uh, kind of traditions of um, of loving her under duress. Sir, please. I wonder if you could share that perspective, your own perspective. I'm curious as to uh, our own uh, continuing and enduring adoration of Jane Austen. Is it more than recognition of her stature? Okay, so um, let me uh, repeat that question, and it's uh, it's a complicated one, and I might have to evade it. <laughs> is uh, let me see if I can re uh, repeat it, and tell me if I'm doing wrong. Is our and does our enduring love of Jane Austen signify our recognition of her timeless greatness, or not uh, instead of timeless greatness, a greatness that um, that is appreciated across time. It's not local, but we can always find ways of, of um, relating to her and loving her. Or does it mean that uh, there aren't any good writers anymore? <laughs> right? Right? Well, you know, that there's nobody, do we love her because there's no one else to, no one of comparable greatness to love? Yeah, she reminds me of this great big banyan tree Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very. Yeah, that's very. Uh, it's very interesting, and I mean, I. Um, I mean, I actually do think that there are Austinian traditions. There are, you know, um, she, that she did leave a legacy, and his name is Henry James. <laughs> you know? You know? Uh, his name is Henry James. His name is E.M. Forster. You know, there um, we could. We, 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 we could go on, uh, on and on. I, I would even say that, um, that in popular literature, I mean, somebody like Agatha Christie is still writing out of, uh, out of this sense that, <laughs> that an English village is where you'll find a murder just about every week. <laughs> you, know, you know, that instead of marriage being the topic, it's murder being the topic. The two, the two topics that always interest people, Austin said, is marriage and death. You know, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that she has that she has a legacy. But I, I do think that one of the things that she did, uh, to use your metaphor, completely destroy or make really hard to read is the 18th century novel, 
the novel that she loved so much, uh, the Gothic novels that she loved so much, Richardson that she loved so much, all of these people that she read and endured, seem very archaic after you read Jane Austen. Do you know? Uh, Thackeray. <laughs> well, Thackeray's afterwards. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Thackeray would, yeah. You know, would, be, would be in that tradition too. But the earlier ones that on which she was completely nourished, curiously by her own success, she made sort of inaccessible. But there are plenty of great, uh, great novelists uh, after, afterwards. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Please. Yes. Well, I have to tell you, I, I, I don't really know because the only people who write about it are, are highly, you know, literate literate people who do nevertheless, um, um, you know, t you know, talk about it. So um, I can't say for sure, but I can say that if Kipling's story has anything of the autobiographical about it, which it probably does, there were probably, you know, enlisted uh, Janeites. Uh, um, but n but notice that Humberstall actually doesn't read the novels until after the war. And he actually learns how to, you know, it's all, all talk about Jane Austen that's the basis of the club before then. So that I, you know, that I can say, I mean, but all kinds of, um, you know, educated people were trying to get hold of Austen's novels during World War II. That we do know. Uh, I think people are beginning to file out. Yeah. And, uh, um, if there are no other questions, please join me in thanking once again. Thank you.